Father, as we take time to look into the book of Acts once again, uh, we pray that you would help us and would open our minds to understand the things that we find in the scriptures. Um, we pray that you uh, would empower us by the Spirit, just like you did these earliest Christians. And we know that you've given us everything we need to bear witness to your name and for a life of godliness. And so we pray for help and, and assistance and that we would be filled with the fullness of the, of the Spirit. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So we, uh, we looked at Pentecost yesterday and the Spirit uh, being... Um, remember, this is going to be really important for next week, so I want you to remember this. Um, how does the Spirit come upon them? Don't, don't tell me tongues of fire, I know that. Um, what verb is used for the Spirit coming upon them? What is it, Josh? That was back in John. What is it in Acts? Okay. Yes. Um, rested upon them, descended upon them, rushed upon them. Um, there's another verb that's really important for this, and and I want you guys to know this for next week. We're gonna have a couple of uh, kind of let's pull some things together lessons next week. Um, and one of, the, one of the words, one of the verbs used for the Spirit in verse 17 of Acts 2 uh, is, In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will what my Spirit on all flesh. Acts 2, 17. Pour out. Pour out. The Spirit, uh, the verb associated with the coming of the Spirit is that it was poured out. Now, um, we also get the idea that the church, um, there was another verb that we used from the Gospels. John the Baptist said, I baptize you with water, but he who is coming after me will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So the verb that's used for the Spirit, uh, the verb that's used for the church being baptized by the Spirit is that the Spirit was poured out upon them rested upon them, descended upon them, those types of things. I want you to keep that in mind as we uh, move into next week. Um, what I want to do for the most part today is look at the Pentecost sermon that Peter preaches, and then uh, if we have time, transition over into uh, Acts chapter 6 and 7 to look at a really important story of a guy named Stephen. What happened to Stephen last night in your reading? He got stoned. He got stoned. He died, and uh, uh, who was there at Stephen's stoning? Saul. Saul. What's Saul's other name? Paul. Paul. The guy that uh, wrote, you know, a good portion of the New Testament was there and was very happy that Stephen died. So we'll try to transition over into that. Um, in, um, in, in the beginning of Acts 2 that we saw yesterday, the Spirit is poured out onto the Christians in Jerusalem, and they start preaching, and all the people from all these different nations can hear them in their native tongue. Uh, but some of the people uh, say, oh man, these guys are, are drunk. Uh, did you catch that in, uh, in Acts 2.13? Some of them said they're filled with new wine. They're, they're drunk. And in verse 14, Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day, meaning that it is 9 a.m. 
So getting drunk in general, not a good thing. Getting drunk before it's 9 a.m., Peter sees that as like, you know, even, even worse. These guys aren't drunk. It's not even 9 in the morning yet. Um, and in verse 16, he says, it's not alcohol that did this. It's not that they're drunk that did this. In verse 16, he says, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And then he's going to quote uh, a portion of Joel chapter uh, 2, verses 28 through 32. Um, now, before we read Peter's quotation from Joel, I want to point out uh, something that is just kind of obvious from the text. Does Peter think that this prophecy in Joel is being fulfilled on the day of Pentecost? Where would you get that? He says, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. So the things that he's about to recite in Joel's prophecy, does Peter think that they have been fulfilled on the day of Pentecost? He does. What Joel said is happening right now, is what Peter is saying. All right? Um, And he's going to quote Joel 2, 28 through 32. and, And this is the prophecy that he quotes. And I'm going to make a list of things that happen in this prophecy. And again, does Peter think this prophecy was fulfilled on Pentecost? Does he say, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel that like has partially come true right now? Well, he says, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. What he quotes, Joel's prophecy, he's saying, what you're seeing right now on Pentecost, this is what Joel was talking about. This is the fulfillment of that prophecy. Verse 17 In the last days, interesting phrase right there. What does he say? In the last days. Last days. So, according to Peter, Peter is living in the what? Last days. That term means something different in the New Testament than you might expect it to mean. We'll talk about that in just a minute. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Spirit poured out. Did that happen at Pentecost? Yeah. Uh, And your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Uh, they'll, They'll speak God's words to the people. And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I'll pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Um, The spirit has been poured out. They've started to testify about Jesus' resurrection. They've started to reveal to the people uh, that the gospel has come true, that Jesus is the Christ. Peter is preaching right now. So they are, are speaking the word of God to the people of God. Uh, there has been prophecy that has happened on on Pentecost. Remember that prophecy, uh, we think of that word a lot of times as telling the future, but that had a much more broad meaning in the Old Testament we saw last year. You guys remember that? Um, Did all the prophets in the Old Testament tell the future? Most of them did, but um, was that even like the main thing that they did? Not usually. They, it's, it's preaching God's word to God pe- God's people. And sometimes that means taking what God says about the future and, and telling that to the people. But a lot of times uh, it, it's about present realities. If you think about like a prophet, uh, Amos, or even, even Joel, uh, the first couple chapters of Joel, um, you know, a lot of the times the prophets would even speak about Israel's past. 
and then say, remember what happened back then. That's what God uh, thinks about your sin right now, too. And something similar will happen to you if you don't repent. So uh, prophecy isn't necessarily a futuristic thing. It's just making known God's word to God's people. Verse 19 is where things get a little bit tricky. Joel continues and says, And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So what does Joel predict in those last portions of the prophecy? What does he what does he predict in those last portions of the prophecy? Yeah, wonders in heaven, probably meaning in the sky. Uh, so wonders in the sky, and then he explains what some of those will be. What were some of them? Sun shall darken, men turn to blood. Sun darkened. A blood moon. Will it only be signs and wonders in the sky? What else? Yeah, signs on earth, uh, which includes blood, vapor, and smoke. But it doesn't really give many details there. Um, here's a question. Um, as Peter preaches on Pentecost, does the sun turn dark? Does the moon turn to blood? And are there, like, all of these crazy, weird signs that accompany it? I mean, what is kind of the weird, crazy sign that accompanies the Spirit coming? Yeah, the fiery tongues above their heads, right? Um, But does all of this stuff literally happen? No. Um, But does Peter quote, I mean, just notice, right? Peter doesn't just quote the first parts of the prophecy and say, what Joel spoke about the Spirit being poured out, that's happened. He says, what you're seeing was uttered through the prophet Joel, and then he quotes all of this. Right? And he doesn't say, these first parts are happening right now, and these other parts will happen later. He quotes all of it and says, this is what you're seeing today. Um, If there was a blood moon and... uh, you know, the sun turned dark on Pentecost. Would you expect the text to tell you that? Yeah. Yeah. So um, did those things literally happen? Probably. No. This is really an interesting um, just exercise in how to interpret biblical prophecy. Um, this, is, this is something that I'm pointing out right now because pretty soon we'll be getting into some biblical prophecy. Um, you know, we next semester are going to have to tackle the book of Revelation. And the book of Revelation, does it use a bunch of language kind of like this? Crazy. Yeah, it uses language that looks, makes this look mild, but it uses, you know, sort of this apocalyptic, larger-than-life type language. And um, something that I like to point out to people as we go through Revelation is that the kind of bigger, over-the-top, larger-than-life type language we find in Revelation, we also find in the Old Testament. Most of the time, the exact same symbols. Um, You know, the whole, like, moon to blood, sun darkened type stuff, like, like, um, you know, that, that sort of stuff is found in the Old Testament. It's found in Revelation. And whenever we start looking at those texts from the Old Testament, um, 
a lot of times what we, what we find is that these types of signs and wonders are not meant for us to take them 100% literally. So, for example, uh, Jeremiah chapter 4 is a prophecy about how Babylon will take Israel into exile. And in Jeremiah 4, um, Jeremiah says, Whenever Babylon takes Israel into exile, the earth will be without form and void. Where does that language come from? Genesis 1-2, where God creates the world and it's without form and void and darkness is over the face of the deep until God starts forming and filling everything. So uh, Jeremiah says Babylon will take Israel, or will take Judah into exile, and on that day the earth will be without form and void. Now whenever Babylon took Jerusalem into exile, did the earth get thrown back into that state of chaos that it was in before the six days of creation? Not in, not in a literal sense. What is Jeremiah's point in saying that? There's going to be a big change. It's going to be a massive change in the way things are. All right. What else? What's the land of Israel going to be like? Yeah, the people are going to be gone, so it's going to be void. All these places where there used to be cities, weeds and stuff are going to start sprouting out. It's going to be without any form, right? He, he uses kind of this over-the-top language, right? Um, what, whenever the earth was without form and void, what came upon it and gave it order and life? The spirit. And the, the Spirit of God dwelled in the tabernacle, dwelled in the temple, and whenever the people are carried into exile, before that happens, the Spirit leaves. Right? The, this is going to be thrown back into the same situation it was in before God's Spirit rested on creation. Right? There, there's meaning, theological meaning, that Jeremiah has behind that statement. Here's another example. The prophet Isaiah predicts that after a period of time, God is going to overthrow Babylon. In Isaiah 14. And he says, In the day when Babylon is overthrown, the stars will fall from heaven down to earth. Now, if a star fell from heaven and hit the earth, what would happen to the earth, literally speaking? Would there be an earth? No. Right? If a, if a star fell and hit the earth, no more earth. Um, has Babylon fallen? That happened a long time ago, way before Jesus came. So is that prophecy of Isaiah fulfilled? But did a star literally fall from heaven and hit the earth? It also says that the sky would be rolled back like a scroll whenever Babylon fell. The, the symbol of stars in scripture, um, remember that in Genesis 1, the stars are created and the sun is created to govern the day and the night. Uh, what type of people govern? Kings. So a lot of times kings who govern a nation, uh, a symbol that the scriptures use for them is a star that governs the day and the night. And whenever God speaks through Isaiah and says Babylon will fall and the stars of heaven will fall to the earth, basically what he's saying is those that govern Babylon are going to do what? Yeah, They've been up on their high thrones and they're going to be brought down to the dust. Those that were in charge are not going to be in charge anymore. There's going to be a change in regime, a change in power, and the stars of Babylon are going to fall. All right? So, yeah. 
Is there any more significance to Babylon, just like Babylon, like the idea of Babylon? Because like, what is, isn't something like in Revelation, I'm, I'm not sure about this, and I just, in Revelation, Babylon shows back up, and in Revelation 11, um, it, it interprets it for you, and it says that there will be two witnesses that preach in the city where the Lord was crucified, which symbolically is called Egypt and Sodom and Babylon. And so um, Babylon throughout Revelation is a picture of Jerusalem and how she's been unfaithful to the Lord. So uh, I don't think it's a, I don't think it's like, you know, Babylon all of a sudden comes back to life or something like that, right? Um, So just to point out here, okay, whenever we're dealing with biblical prophecy, sometimes this cosmic apocalyptic over-the-top language is used. Peter, in this text, um, recognizes that it shouldn't be taken literally. He says all these things are being fulfilled on Pentecost. So whenever we come to some of this language, whether it's in Zechariah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Amos, Old Testament prophets, or whenever we come to it in the book of Revelation, we shouldn't be so committed to literalism that we are interpreting the scriptures differently than Peter does. Uh, Peter interprets the scriptures under the perfect guidance of who? The Holy Spirit, right? Um, If we believe in the inspiration of scripture, if we trust that the Holy Spirit was upon the apostles as they wrote, then we would expect that whenever Peter interprets the Old Testament, he does so how? Perfectly. So here's a question. If you interpret the Old Testament one way and Peter and Paul interpret the Old Testament a different way, who's right? Peter and Paul. Um, as followers of Jesus and followers of the apostles, you know, we, we come after them. They're the foundation on which we're built up. Um, should we seek to interpret scripture the way that Jesus, Peter, and Paul do? We should. So Peter does not take this language literally, nor should we. Um, But he interprets Joel and says, the prophecy of Joel is fulfilled, the Spirit's been poured out on believers. And then in verse 22, he says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, that Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Remember, who is Peter preaching to in this sermon? Hmm? The Jews in Jerusalem. And he looks at them and says, you crucified Jesus. You handed him over to Pilate. Maybe not a great way to make friends, but it's going to go well for him. God's Spirit's going to be at work through this. Verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by death. For David says concerning him, and then he quotes a portion of the 16th Psalm, I saw the Lord always before me, for he's at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the paths of life. You'll make me full of gladness with your presence. Peter interprets this in verse 29. Brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and that his tomb is with us to this day. So in the psalm, David said, you won't let me see corruption. Um, What happened to David's body? It died, and then what did it do? Yeah, got corrupted, decayed. So he says, I say to you with confidence, this psalm can't be about David. David died, his body saw corruption and decay. It's with us to this day. 
But in verse 30, he says, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he's poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into heaven, but he himself said, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard that they, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent, and be baptized. baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So these people are to repent, they're supposed to believe, and then they are to be baptized. And then verse 39, who is the promise for? You and your children. Yeah, very interesting language there. Notice what Peter says. He says, for this promise is for you, and it's for who? And it's also for all who are far off, all the Gentiles, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, Peter bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And notice that after they're baptized, Luke continues and says, there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So before um, these people are counted as part of the church, what do they undergo? Baptism. Um, baptism is a right of entry into the Christian community and into the church. You can be saved prior to baptism uh, because we know that you're saved by what alone? Grace through faith, right? You can be saved prior to baptism uh, Romans says, if you believe in your heart, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. Um, baptism, uh, though, is the way that you join a local body of Christians. Uh, you, are, you are brought into membership. Uh, and how many people got saved by Peter's preaching? About 3,000. About 3, okay. And the promise of the gospel, once again, is for the people hearing, and it's also for who? In verse 39, this promise, Peter says, is for you and for your children. Um, that's a very, very important phrase that we will come back to next week, but you need to remember it. Acts 2.39 is something that you probably want to make a note of. Uh, in chapter 3, Peter is going to have another sermon. This time it's in the temple. Uh, he and John heal a man who was crippled from birth, and the man starts leaping and walking. His legs are healed. And then um, Peter uses the miracle uh, as a way to kind of, uh, you know, it gives him a platform for preaching again. Notice that the miracles in Acts, whether it's speaking in tongues in Acts 2 or healing this man in Acts 3, every miracle, every sign is subservient to preaching the gospel. Uh, the signs are not the main thing. The message is. The message is more important. The miracles are there to bear witness, to help, uh, but they are not the main thing. They're not the thing that leads anyone to faith, by the way. The message is. Um, 
So in um, Acts 3, he's going to preach again. And, and the thing that I really want to point out, um, I'm just going to make a couple of points off of his sermon really quickly. Um, verse 15, somebody read the first phrase of verse 15 before the comma. For these people are not drunk. Uh, chapter 3. <laughs> yeah, notice um, Peter's preaching to Jews in the temple. And he looks at them and he says, you killed the author of life. Now, that's a very intriguing phrase, isn't it? He's talking about Jesus there and he calls Jesus the author of life. Um, if, if you need any proof that the book of Acts teaches the divinity of Christ, there it is. Um, only a person who can be truly called the author of life is God. And that title is being taken and applied to the one who was crucified, Jesus Christ. Um, another thing that I find really interesting in this sermon is in verse 26, Peter concludes it by saying, God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. How does, how does Jesus bless the people according to Peter in that verse? He blesses them by doing what? turning them from wickedness. Uh, You know, maybe uh, Nicodemus is the really good example of this. Uh, Jesus says some very hard words to Nicodemus that Nicodemus probably wouldn't have liked to have heard, uh, but this winds up proving a blessing. It turns Nicodemus from wickedness. One of the ways that Christ brings us blessing is turning us from wickedness. Um, Peter and John get in some trouble with the Jewish authorities. Um, uh, you read about that in chapter four. Chapter five, we had the story of Ananias and Sapphira, which if we had more time, I would talk about at length. Uh, what is Ananias's and Sapphira's sin? What do they do wrong? They lie to who? Peter says to the Holy Spirit. And what, what happens to Ananias and Sapphira? They die. They die. Um, in chapter 6, uh, something that we are going to spend some time on is um, there's a conflict that arises in, in chapter 6. The church is growing. There's a lot of Christians. Uh, they're sharing everything in common. Many are selling their land and possessions and putting it at the disciples' feet to be distributed as anybody has need. Um, and in chapter 6, there's a debate that has come up. Uh, in verse 1, it says, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in, num- in number, a complaint by the Hellenist. Um, the Hellenists are a group of Jews. And Hellenism has to do with what culture? You remember? Greek. Greek, right? So there's a group of Jews who have really been friendly with Greek stuff. All right? But now they've become Christians. And there are other Jews who have stayed away from Greek stuff. They've stayed very Jewish, and now they've become Christians. And these two groups are still having a hard time getting along, right? There's a complaint by the Hellenists uh, that arose against the Hebrews because the widows of the Hellenists were being neglected in the daily distribution. So people are bringing their goods and supplies, laying it at the apostles' feet. It's then being given to anybody as they have need. But in the church... Everybody is a Christian. Everybody's claiming to be a Christian. Okay? But you have this division between uh, Hellenistic Jews, people who are ethnically Jewish, uh, but liked Greek stuff, and the uh, really people who came from a very Jewish 
Jewish, Jewish, Jewish background, Jewish squared, right? Um, and the Hellenists, the widows, are not getting the supplies that they need in the daily distribution. These, these are widows that can't take care of themselves. They're dependent on the church to meet their needs, and they're, they're being gypped a little bit. So the solution that the disciples come up with is they say, we need to continue to devote ourselves to preaching, teaching, and praying. That's our job. The job of the disciples, we need to preach, we need to teach, we need to pray. Um, but these mercy ministries, these kind of meeting these physical needs, it still needs to be done. So there is a, uh, a certain um, job in the church that develops in Acts chapter 6, uh, and it's the office of deacon. Uh, deacon, uh, the, the Greek word for deacon literally just means serve, to serve, or servant. All right, so a deacon is a servant, and the job of a deacon is you, you have the disciples who are kind of acting like pastors. They're preaching, teaching, and praying. That's their job, and the deacons are coming along, and they're taking care of the other stuff so that the, the disciples can continue to preach and teach and pray. All right, so deacons today, you've got a pastor of a church. All right, that person is supposed to preach, teach, and pray, meet with people, counsel people, um, preach on Sunday morning, but teach in other capacities, pray for the congregation. That's, that's the job of the pastor, okay? The deacons are supposed to take care of the other stuff that the church needs to function, but they don't want the pastor to have to do it all. So a deacon, um, the deacons might make some of the, uh, you know, financial choices. Right now at my church, uh, there's, there's a lot of uh, new building that is having to take place. And that's largely the job of the deacons, all right, to figure out exactly how are we going to do all of this. Uh, the deacons might be the people that, that set stuff up on Sunday morning to make sure things are ready to go for the service. The deacons uh, might be some of the people, well, in this case, they're going around to the widows making sure that their physical needs are provided for, all right? So they, they appoint seven deacons, seven servants, who are going to take care of the widows of the Hellenistic Jews, and one of these guys is particularly important. His name is... Stephen or Stephen, depending on how you say yeah. it. Yeah. I've always heard people say... It looks like Stephen, but I've always heard people say Stephen. Um, Stephen is one of these seven servants, one of these seven deacons. Um, but Stephen is also a person who recognizes he has a responsibility to evangelize and share the gospel. So in um, chapter 6, verse 8, Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen and of the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians and of those of Sicilia and Asia rose up and argued with Stephen but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we've heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Notice the order. Moses, then Moses. Then. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon Stephen and seized him and brought him before the council and they set up false witnesses who said, uh, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place 
the temple, and the law. For we've heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at Stephen, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So what are they mad about? Uh, This guy speaks words against Moses. um, And what does that mean? Is he saying, oh man, Moses in the Old Testament, that guy sucked. I hate Moses. Is that what he's saying? What what are they claiming he's speaking against? Moses, what does it mean he's speaking against Moses? Yeah, Moses' law. Uh, they're saying he speaks against Moses' law. And the second thing is they say that he speaks uh, they say he speaks against Moses and he speaks against who? God. Yeah. And what does it probably mean he speaks about God? Is Stephen going around saying, Man, the God of the Old Testament I don't like him. He's not real. Is that what Stephen's saying? No. No. What would they be complaining about Stephen speaking against God? Yeah, saying that Jesus is God, is equal with God. Um, They think that he is a blasphemer, and they think that um, because of what he believes about Jesus, uh, um, that Jesus uh, is equal with the Father, equal with God. Uh, And then the third thing is they say that he speaks against Moses, he speaks against God, he speaks against the law, and he speaks against this holy place. He speaks against the temple. He says, um, what does he say about the temple? That Jesus will destroy it. By the way, did Jesus say anything about that? When? What sermon? But he was talking about the temple of his body, right? What was the one where he actually predicted the destruction of the physical temple? He didn't say he would destroy it. He just said, wait, did he say? He said it would be destroyed. Yeah, he just said it would be destroyed. Is it the upper room discourse? Whatever he's talking about. It's on a mountain. All of that. All of that, right? The destruction of the temple. Uh, Jesus, look at how great this temple is. Surely I tell you, not one stone will be left on another. When will these things take place? And he starts explaining. Um, So, uh, what Stephen does in the sermon is he addresses these three issues. Um, He shows an incredible, incredible knowledge of the Old Testament. He basically summarizes all of Old Testament history in a chapter. Um, And uh, I would advise you all to read that chapter multiple times, not necessarily because of a test, but because um, there are details that Stephen draws out of the Old Testament that you and I maybe would have really struggled to do it. Once Once he does it, and he draws some of these details out and and brings them to your attention, and you go back to the text, you can see them there. But he highlights some things that we probably would have overlooked if if we didn't have Stephen teaching us. So this is a sermon that I would advise you guys to read over and over and over again if you're interested in understanding the scriptures and understanding the Old Testament. Uh, It's absolutely fascinating, fantastic. Um, And um, Stephen... um, Stephen deals with all of these um, different uh, criticisms, specifically at the end of the sermon. Um, In verse 42, he says, God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven 
as it's written in the book of the prophets, did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god, Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I sent you to exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. And so it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Um, So the first thing that he kind of highlights is he he quotes an Old Testament prophet. um, And and in in verses 42 and 43, uh, he quotes from Amos where Amos is saying, you know, in the wilderness, did you offer sacrifices? Is that something I asked you to do? No. Um, So he's using this as a support that um, with the coming of Jesus, uh, certain things about Moses' law have passed away. Sacrifices aren't necessary. Uh, You know, we don't don't need to offer those anymore. Um, There were points in Old Testament history where God's people weren't required to offer them. We don't see that in the wilderness. Uh, We really don't see that much at all before the tabernacle was built, yet people were saved uh, even though that was the case. And so um, he's making the point here, you know, sacrifices aren't the thing that God was looking for. Uh, The thing that he was looking for was was that our hearts were in the right place. Um, Samuel speaks to Saul. Do you guys remember Saul, first king of Israel? You remember he makes an improper sacrifice at one point? He offers a sacrifice that he shouldn't have offered. And Samuel shows up to him and says, God doesn't uh, delight in sacrifice as much as he does in obedience. And he says, the sin you've committed in offering this is uh, the equivalent of idolatry and witchcraft. Really strong statement. Um, Hosea 6.6, which Jesus quotes on multiple occasions. um, I desire steadfast love more than sacrifice. Uh, I delight in obedience more than a burnt offering. And so... Um, Stephen and the early Christians are teaching that things have changed with the coming of Jesus. Sacrifices aren't necessary anymore, but this is actually taught in the Old Testament. It's taught that sacrifices uh, are not the main thing. He then goes on and he quotes um, Solomon, who's um, at the at the dedication of the temple. Um, Solomon spoke. Uh, or God was speaking through Solomon and said, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place for my rest? Did not make my hand make all these things. Um, and so Stephen is highlighting something here. Even at the dedication of the temple, there was this awareness that is, God's presence was specially on the temple, but was God limited to the temple? Could the temple contain him? Where is God? everywhere so um he stephen points to the old testament and says you know christianity is teaching that the temple isn't really all that important anymore christ has come and jesus said in john 4 uh to the woman at the well uh there's a day coming when you won't worship in jerusalem but you'll worship the father everywhere in spirit and in truth and again stephen quotes the old testament and says even at the dedication of the temple solomon had an awareness that uh you know the the temple wasn't the only place where God was present. One of the Psalms says, if I built my house all the way up in the heavens, you'd find me there. And if I made my bed in Sheol, you would find me there. God's everywhere. 
Um, so he cites the Old Testament to say that the temple isn't necessary for, for us anymore. And then um, the people get really mad at this. And um, they're enraged. And it says in verse 54, they grind their teeth at him, which doesn't sound pleasant. Don't try it. Right. But they're so mad. They're grinding their teeth at him. And um, verse 55, um, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And Stephen said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. Um, you remember that Son of Man, Ancient of Days text that Jesus liked to quote so much? Anybody remember where that was found? Daniel 7, the Son of Man appears before the Ancient of Days, and what does the Ancient of Days give the Son of Man in Daniel 7? Glory and power and forever. Yeah, and the scriptures are very clear. Who does God share his glory with? No one. So everyone understands that the Son of Man in Daniel 7 is a divine figure, right? And Stephen here says Jesus equals Son of Man. And the Son of Man is before the God, uh, before God. He's before the Ancient of Days, which means that he is the one who has glory and dominion. Uh, And the only person who has glory and dominion is God. And so uh, if we take a couple of steps away, uh, Stephen is saying, and and they understand him to be saying uh, that. And they have been mad about what he said about sacrifices. They've been mad about what he said about the temple. But whenever he says this, uh, verse 57 says, they cried with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed at him. So they, You've seen a little kid before. You start telling him something. Blah, 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 I can't hear you. you know, uh, Grown-up version of that. Uh, they tried to cast him out of the city. Or they did cast him out of the city. And they what? Uh, now, remember, whenever the people wanted to kill Jesus, what did they do to Jesus? Where did they take Jesus? Who did they take Jesus to? Pilate, the Roman governor, because they're not allowed to kill anybody. They have to go to the Romans if they want to use the death penalty. They are so mad at Stephen that even though this could potentially uh, get them in trouble with the Romans that they're so scared of, they don't care and they stone him to death. And Stephen, in verse 59, calls out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Notice, who does he pray to there? Jesus. Jesus. So can you pray to Jesus? Stephen did. Jesus is fully God. You can pray to him. And then falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. And then he died. In chapter 8, verse 1, Saul approved of his execution. And so tomorrow we need to talk about the uh, death of Stephen and the story of Saul. So we'll do that tomorrow. You're reading tonight. You guys did through chapter 8 last night, correct? Yes.
Uh, tonight, I need you to do Acts 9 through... Let me see how long these chapters are real quick. Uh, let's do uh, 9 through 13. I noticed that 13 is kind of long, but it also has a bunch of Old Testament quotes which make it look longer than it actually is because there's a bunch of blank white space. So you guys can do it. <laughs> 